Welcome to this session of Adelaide Writers Week. I'm Karen Goldsworthy, and today I'll be talking to Charlotte Wood. Um, not for the first time in, in this venue, to my great pleasure. Before I do anything else, um, as always, an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Ghana people are the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains, and we pay respects to elders past, present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. A little bit of housekeeping. Um, it's mainly a COVID message, I'm sorry, but there we are. Thank you for all wearing your masks. We're allowed to not, because we have to talk and we're up here a long way away from you. Um, I do need to reinforce some key conditions of our COVID management plan, which is approved by SA Health. Please maintain social distancing wherever you can. We strongly encourage the wearing of masks and we ask you to follow directions given by the COVID marshals, the venue staff and the volunteers. Thank you. Uh, we also ask you to support our authors by buying books at the book tent. Um, the books from this session can be found at the quick sales counter and there will be a book signing at the end of the session. Just one more thing, if you've forgotten to turn off your phone or put it on silent, now's the time. Now to the business end. Charlotte Wood is the author of six novels and three books of non-fiction. Her latest book, which is one of those, is The Luminous Solution. It's an exploration of creativity and the inner life. Her last novel was the international bestseller, The Weekend. It was shortlisted for several awards, including the Stella Prize and the Prime Minister's Literary Award, both of which she had already won, among others, for her previous novel, The Natural Way of Things, in 2015. And we'll be talking about both The Weekend and The Natural Way of Things in the course of this talk. In 2019, Charlotte was made a member of the Order of Australia and named one of the Australian... <laughs> yeah, indeed. Thank you. She was named one of the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence. Her features and essays have appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian and many other publications. She holds two postgraduate degrees in creative writing. She has a Master in Creative Arts and a PhD in Creative Writing. Please welcome Charlotte Wood. Thank you. Thank you, Karen. Charlotte, I thought we'd start maybe with... Um, the luminous solution. What is this luminous solution of which you speak? <laughs> it's a, a title that um, has had many writer friends say to me, just tell me what it is. Just tell me the solution. Um, sadly, I do not have the solution. Um, the, quote, uh, the title comes from a quote by an American writer called Janet Burroway. I'm just going to read it so I don't get it wrong. Um, about the process of writing. And she said, once I'm working, the process is much the same in every genre. The effort to get myself to the computer, a period of grumpy struggle, despair, the luminous solution that appears in bed or bath, joyful work, repeat, repeat, repeat. And I thought, yep, she's nailed it. So, um, 
So we, because the book is about creativity, it's about the creative process, um, or my experience of the creative process, and um, it seemed like a good title. So, stolen, but... <laughs> Can you give us an, an, an example from your own practice of a moment, you know, when you had the luminous solution after all that grumpy struggle? Oh... Well, they're sort of they're sort of micro solutions, aren't they? I mean, you know this from writing. Well, you you really, especially if you're, for me, writing fiction is is hardest, and it is um, a, a period of uncovering something you don't know what it is, and you are um, you're trying to sort of, it's almost digging something out of the ground in a way and you're trying to find the shape of it or what, um, I'm being extremely garbled, I understand. Um, but you're trying to uncover something or, or often to make a connection between two things. So you know you want this thing and that thing but there is, there's, there's no reason why those things go together. But every now and again, suddenly, that becomes clear the reason these two things actually do connect. Um, and that's one of those luminous solution moments. And it's often a, a moment where you... For me, in, in the shower is often where they happen. Um, I know, for example, in the weekend, I was writing for ages about these women friends who were staying in a house together, being really quite scratchy with each other. And I was thinking... Um, what, why are these women together if they can't, you know, if they're so cranky with each other? What's mm. holding them in this place together? Why don't they leave? And it took me um, ages to realise that, oh, they're in this house because it's their friend Sylvie's house, you know, and, and they kind of have to be there to work out, to, to get the stuff ready, to get the house ready for sale. So they're there because of duty and because of history. They're not just hanging around together. So that, and I know exactly the spot on the bathroom wall that I was looking at when I was like, oh, that's it. And then it's like the engine starts for a patch of writing and then, you know, it conks out again later on and you have to find another little solution. Yeah. But. yeah. No, I, my, my own recent experience of that was thinking out of nowhere. I hadn't been thinking about the book at all and it's suddenly just, and I think, yes, bed or bath, as you say, oh, that's not chapter one, that's chapter two. Mm. Is that the kind of thing you mean? Exactly. Well, it's, it's as though someone actually told you. you yes. Um, and you sort of feel silly that you didn't realise it before. <laughs> it's like, oh, of course. What an idiot. But you have to go through that grumpy struggle period to, to reach that point where the connection is made. It's like you feel your brain working, you know, it's almost a physical feeling of sort of, come on, you know, and you can feel my brain sort of creaking, and then suddenly, ping, there's the little, the neural pathway is made. Yeah. Yeah, what is it, totally what is it about, what rubbish. is it about the bed or bath? You've said, um, you know, the solution, that solution will often come to you in bed or bath, I yeah. think was the phrase you used. Yeah. What is it about the bed and bath? Have you got any? Well, I think it's when it's your, well, the bed thing is interesting because, yeah, of its connection to sleep and there's quite a bit in the book about that period between waking and sleeping and also about your dream life that I think in bed your proximity to your unconscious mind is slightly more open or perhaps you're more receptive to what your unconscious is telling you. Um, and the shower, I don't know, maybe it's like walking the shower where you're kind of you know, you're occupied with certain physical things like washing your hair or whatever, brushing your teeth or whatever you do in the bathroom or the shower. Um, 
And it's, it's that letting go of, of trying, I yeah. think, that can... You know, there's all sorts of stuff in the creativity research about um, that period that's called incubation or um, percolation or that sort of period where there's work going on but you're not consciously trying to direct it. And I feel like it only comes after you have been trying to direct it. You've got to earn it. I feel that you have to earn it. Yeah. I mean, there might be... It's because if I just walked around and had showers all day, it wouldn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or if I just went to bed into the shower, like, that's actually not going to get a book written. It's the boring part sitting at the desk. But somehow, I don't know, you're, you're rewarded when you stop sometimes. I'm wondering if it's got something to do with water. I mean, water mm. water's mm. often a symbol of the unconscious and vice versa. So yeah. maybe it's just that sort of, you know, you're closer to your unconscious mind when there's water all around you. Than... I, I, I would agree with that, absolutely. It's, and I was wondering, I mean, because the last essay ends with you talking about your never having been a water person and then, you know, coming to that, mm. um, that maybe that, was, that could have been a major breakthrough in your own creative practice if you were embracing water like that. Yes. I wish it were more of a breakthrough. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think... So the last essay is sort of about nature and creativity and about how I was always kind of afraid of the... As a child of English parents who... We were sort of terrified of the... And, we, and I lived in the inland in New South Wales in a country town and the ocean particularly um, was kind of terrifying to me because I'm a hopeless swimmer and, and it's still a bit scary. But... Um, then I've, I've begun spending a lot of time on the central coast of New South Wales and and swimming every day yeah. when I'm there. And that period of just... And realising that the water can carry... You know, you don't have to fight it. You don't have to be so afraid of it. And I do think that, you know, there's something very... You know, the unconscious is the ocean in our... I don't know, in ourselves in some way. Um, well, that's the, last, that's the last moment in the weekend, isn't it, where they realise that... That the ocean will carry them, mm. that they don't need mm. to carry this burden themselves, that they can be lifted, lifted up. Um, uh, th that essay, the last one, the final one, is called The Rapture, and it's about, as Charlotte says, um, the importance of the natural world to creativity and creative practice. Have you... What are your thoughts about that? You seem to have sort of come to some of these thoughts quite recently. Yeah, I did some research for my PhD on... Um, the cognitive processes of creativity. So it came from sort of cognitive psychology realm. But I've been one of those people who's always just grabbed at anybody else's writing or speaking about their creative process. It's sort of, you know, slightly out of desperation. <laughs> like, just tell me, tell me how to do it. And also out of just genuine interest in how does this thing work? Because it is mysterious. And I think it still has to be mysterious. You know, I don't want it to be um, able to be thoroughly explained, um, because if you could, we wouldn't have art, really. I think it, it comes from a mysterious place. And yet there are things that are sort of, you know, sometimes common to, to people. Um, and a researcher I've always loved, um, who I'm sure a lot of you will have heard of, called Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, he wrote the Flow books. Um, and he d uh, had a whole lot of really fascinating research. And one bit in one of his books, he talks about the proximity to nature being kind of documented as um, beneficial for creativity. Uh, he says people in beautiful natural surroundings, he said something like it's not a silver bullet but it's been shown that 
people spending time in beautiful natural surroundings are more likely to make sort of beneficial connections between right. things. Yeah, I see that. Um, your definition of a creative person strikes me as a really generous, open-hearted one. You said, a creative person is anyone who makes something appear when nothing was before. And that embraces an awful lot of it. It's not just, you know, writers and visual artists, is it? No, and I feel really strongly about this. I'm kind of romantic about it in some ways, I think. But I grew up in a house, in a family where you made things. My father was one of those very um, talented sort of men of his generation who could make furniture, he, he could make, you know, brick walls, he could paint, he could... He made our, you know, book week costumes and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and my mother was a florist and a really beautiful gardener. So she made gardens. And we just had a sense as children that making was important and fun and anyone could do it. Mm. So we made... The one thing that we were all really terrible at making was clothes, sewing, you know, we, in my era. We had to do sewing at school and we were all hopeless at it, including my mother. Um, but other, other than that, um, but also you still had to do it. And I think that's kind of good for children to be sort of forced, basically, to, <laughs> to, to try to make something. Um, and one of the things I feel kind of sorry about is that people often say to people like me, oh, it must be wonderful to be creative. You know, I don't have a creative bone in my body, but, you know, you're so lucky. And, and I feel that I am lucky. But I think one of the reasons people say I'm not creative is because they've tried to make something, whether it's, you know, painting or a cake or a dress or a, anything, and, and it didn't work. Mm. And so then they think, oh, I'm, not, I'm no good at this. Whereas anyone who is, works in the creative, in any creative field... That's our daily life, is it not working? And then you do it again and it still doesn't work. And sometimes you do it for a year and a half and it's not working, um, in the case of a book. But then one of those connections will happen. It's like, ah, now it might work. Um, but failure is absolutely essentially a part of the normal creative process. So I... But also people express their creative selves in so many different ways that I think are sort of discounted unless you're a professional. Um, so, you know, I, I have friends who, are, who have the most beautiful eye for, for making a house beautiful and harmonious and, you know, interesting. People who make gardens that have a sort of surprising element somewhere. Um, People who some people do it in their clothes, you know, the way that they that they spend a lot of creative energy in putting together their clothes, and I think that is a creative process and is absolutely, um, you know, available to us. It's not. I think the professionalisation of of creativity is great, but it's not the only thing. You know, there's there's just so many different ways. I mean, I I love to cook, and that for me is a really pure creative outlet because nothing's writing on it, you know. There's no there's no public scrutiny of it when yeah. I make a cake and people go, well, you know, it starts out all right, but then, you know, the middle is a bit sinking and whatever. So it doesn't matter. It's only for me to make and eat. <laughs> it's and, and there's a distinction to be made too, isn't there, between technique and inspiration. 
you know, you could, you could have a fabulous idea about a dress that maybe didn't work out quite right, but you still had the, the fabulous idea. It, and that leads me into something that I know you wanted to talk about a bit. Um, it's a, I actually wrote this down. It struck me. It's about organisations, and, and as we know, organisations in some ways, especially these days, with what you're calling, quite rightly, the professionalisation of creativity, are the whole infrastructure of, of being an artist. You kind of can't... Do, almost can't do without it anymore. But um, Charlotte's written, I once read some research showing that no matter how much we claim to embrace creativity and want it in our lives, most people and organisations actually do the opposite. We fear and actively work to reject creativity when we see it. Can you...? Yeah, this is this fantastic study I came across. Uh, it sort of made so much sense of... of you know, so sort of watchword in business circles is, oh, we need to be creative. So quite a lot of sort of corporate speak talks about um, bringing in creative people and ideas people and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And the thing in, in, I think you just mentioned it, where even if you're employed to be creative, the organisation will work to reject your creativity. Because what we actually want, as especially in organisations and governments, um, is we want a replication of already existing creativity. Yeah. We don't want original things because we haven't seen them before and we don't know that they're creative because it hasn't been proven by somebody else that it's already creative. So um, we, we fight and we, we, we reject it. And so to be in an organisation uh, when you're employed to be the kind of ideas person, I've never been in this situation, thankfully, but uh, it's very difficult because everyone thinks they want what, you, what you're offering, but nobody does want it. Because A, creativity involves a huge amount of failure. Yeah. Real creativity is, you know, I throw out 80% of what I write. Um, so an organisation, there's very few organisations who will accept that level of, you know, unproductivity. Um, so that's one thing. Also, you know, we don't know if it's going to work. Well, we don't want that, you know. <laughs> exactly. What are these amazing, you know, energy solutions? Well, has it worked before? Well, no, we haven't tried it before. But, so we don't want that. Um, so I think... It would be really great if we all sort of just in daily life or when someone puts up an idea and you think, we reject things so quickly. Mm. But often the worst ideas, if we just go with them for a bit, will give rise to the best ideas. Yeah. Um, so you have to sort of have faith in it and have faith in creative people. And I think our culture particularly... I mean, I think our governments at every single level actually hate artists. They're, they actually are hostile to artists. They mistrust artists and they wish we didn't exist. Hmm. And, you know, that's fine, but it means you're missing out on all this incredible... Um, I mean, I keep thinking about the beginning of the pandemic. If we had a government that got together the best artists, the best sports people, the best... Um, environmentalists, the best of everyone in every field, and brought them together and said, how are we going to tackle this? We would have come up with amazing stuff. Mm. But no, we go, well, we have medical people and government. That's it. And that's it. And it failed. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, I mean, it leads me into something that I noticed when I was reading through the essays. I've, I've, 
theme that comes up again and again. You talk about... Oh, hang on, there's a, an actual passage here, I think. You're talking about anxiety and fear. You see, the anxiety involved in creativity can be extreme. I mean, two words that come up repeatedly when you're talking about creativity are courage and fear. What's to be feared and what do you need courage for? I know, it seems kind of silly, doesn't it, to talk about being afraid to write a book, you know. It's kind of, it doesn't make any sense. But I think it's because you're going somewhere where you haven't been before. And if you are a professional, you know it's going to be publicly evaluated at some point if you publish it. So you're afraid of exposing yourself, really. You're afraid of exposing your lack of intellect. Um, your, for me, a lot of it, until the natural way of things, when I just thought, all right, let it happen, um, was my weirdness, you know, the strange thoughts that you have. You think, I can't say that. People will think I'm insane. Um, the ugly sort of animal self that we all have, um, exposing those things is, is frightening because, you know, a psychologist once explained to me very helpfully that we are tribal creatures. We, our, our deepest, deepest human need is to belong to the group. And as soon as you do anything that's going to separate yourself from the group, we, our kind of lizard brain perceives this as threat. Um, we mm. cannot be separated because it's threatening to us. Um, but that's what being an artist uh, demands, that you separate yourself from the mainstream, not, not from people, but from, from you know, the mainstream thought. To, to come up with original ideas, you, you have to... And I'm not saying all my ideas are wildly original by any stretch, but when you're, when you're doing it, it feels like that. Mm. You're going into new territory of your own. And, and it has some weird primal kind of fear attached that doesn't make logical sense. So fear of exposure, and you do you do talk very convincingly at one point about the the paradox really at the heart of being a writer is on the one hand it can be such a solitary and often needs to be such a solitary activity, um, and on the other hand you know that there's going to come a point when you finish the work that you really need it not to be solitary that you need it to become a public thing you know you're writing to communicate with mm. with people after all. So there's a real tension there, isn't it, that you've got to sort of live in. I thought we'd, we can talk about that a bit more later, but I was hoping that you would, um, just just by way of a you know a shift, um, I was hoping Charlotte would read a piece from the wonderful essay called, is it Gods and Ghosts? I think um, so. I've forgotten. And this yes. is about a Catholic childhood, which is never not an interesting subject. <laughs> On Gods and Ghosts, yes, it is called that. Uh, and the subtitle is Catholicism, Contradiction and Creativity. So I grew up in a very Catholic family... And um, you know, went to mass every week, and at a certain age, rejected the whole thing as you know, misogynist, um, hypocritical organisation, who didn't want me. You know, as a girl growing up in the Catholic Church, it was very plain to me that uh, I think I say somewhere here that I'd been absorbing the message from birth: if I didn't hate myself for being a girl, God had no interest in me. So. You know, at in my teens or um, late teens, I, you know, I'm out of here. Um, but so this part says so. After all this, stupefied by boredom and increasingly outraged by double standards and hypocrisy, how can it be that at the same time, on some other plane, I was also nurtured and secretly enthralled by the Bible, the Mass, 
the stories of the saints. I loved the lushness, the supernatural weirdness of the visions and miracles. I loved the dream world reality in which a man could walk on water, where bushes could burst into flame but not incinerate, where oceans could part, bread fall from heaven. I loved the visceral righteous dramas of betrayal and punishments and secrets, of lonely vigils in midnight gardens, of blood money paid in silver, the appearance and disappearance of foretelling angels, resurrections from the dead. I even loved the violence, the arrows and stones and knives and gore, the robes soaked in blood and vinegar, iron nails driven into flesh and thorns into scalp. The ritual of the mass itself was an almost bodily lesson in narrative, structured in tension and release. The long stretches of monotony punctuated with bursts of movement where we, the slumped observers, were roused into action. The passing of the collection plate, the peace be with yous, when you turned in your seat from the authority of the priest to focus on each other, where you might be called upon to speak to a stranger, where a bolder congregant might even extend a hand. And then, for long years, the only point of interest, there was the opportunity for curious, detailed inspection of your fellow parishioners and their fashion choices as they stood in line for communion. <laughs> Inside the church itself, of course, there was the irresistible spectacle of excess. The brocade in gold and purple and forest green, the white marble, red carpet, the golden chalices and cups and little bowls, the candlelight and glowing flowers. I loved the transformation of annoying or faceless boys from school into languid, holy creatures in flowing red robes and white ruffs, lying in dreamy reverie across the shallow stairs to the altar, occasionally ringing a bell or two. There was also a delicious soaking cadence to the language of the Bible, with its repetitions and rhythms, its rocking two by twos and 40 days and 40 nights, its seven years of good luck and seven of bad. And there was a mystical potency in the symbols of apple and serpent and loaves and fishes, every mundane object rich with the possibility of another life, carrying layers of hidden meaning purely by existing. Once, when quite young, I, for some reason, accompanied the child of another family to her Protestant Sunday school and found myself appalled. <laughs> we sat on plastic chairs in a small meeting room, bare of any sacred bling, and from a flimsy pamphlet were offered a dull, sweet children's story about lambs and being good. The adults in charge were creepily ingratiating, commanding no authority whatsoever. There was no gold, no robes, no violence or mystery, no otherworldliness or grandeur. There might have been biscuits from a packet. <laughs> I never went back. I left the church. I left the church around the time I finished school, by which I mean I stopped going to mass. I don't know if I had ever actually believed in God, even in my most spiritual moments. But for me, that question was now settled. I was an atheist. But in another way, nothing was settled. I could reject it all I liked, but it was too late to matter. 
I was awake to what was unseen, to the ghostly, the imaginative spirit, to sacrifice, to injustice. Catholicism had got into my bones as surely as the cold Monero air filled my lungs. And despite almost never setting foot in a church again, I couldn't just will it away. It's all there for a writer, isn't it, from the beginning? The language, the imagery, the narrative. Mm. Um, I, I was, while you were reading that, I was thinking of the, the first essay in this book, which is about the necessity, you know, if you, if you feel yourself to be an artist or a creative person, um, of nurturing the, the inner life. And, and while you were reading that, I was thinking, you know, if you're lucky, your inner life again and again harks back to the past. You can go back, you can find something else in it, find something else in it. Um, but that, uh, talk, before we get on to the idea of, you know, dwelling in that space of tension, um, maybe talk a little bit more about the inner life and what you, how you conceive of that. Mm. Well, I was asked to write an essay about the inner life and it was one of those sort of fortuitous um, commissions where, you know, I would never have come up with the idea of I'm going to write about the inner life. <laughs> but, so I said, sure, I'll write about that. And then I had to think, well, what is it? What does it mean, an inner life? And does everybody have an inner life? If you don't have an inner life, does it matter? And if I have an inner life, what does it sort of consist of? And I realised that for artists, the inner life is absolutely bound up really very strongly with our work. Um, and it's sort of a home to go to for mm. me. And probably for everybody, I don't know. Um, but, you know, that place where, you know, when you're a writer, you really have no excuse to ever be bored. I mean, I, I am easily bored, but that's because I'm also lazy. But, you know, if you're somewhere, a writer friend of mine said she was going off to some dinner that she really didn't want to go to. She it's going to be really boring. But, you know, it won't be because there'll be people there. And whatever they're like, she can sort of just go, you know, just... You, you're like a some creature that just sucks in impressions from everywhere or, um, you know, just a tiny moment you observe, you think, oh, yes, mm. I can use... I mean, I think people often think writers are sort of using sort of people, but, you know, I can, I can employ that in my work. And it's not about that person at all. It's no. about something else. Um, I don't know if anyone has read Christos Chalkis' new book, Seven and a Half, it's a wonderful, wonderful um, portrayal of how a writer makes a work of fiction, you know, where the, the writer Christos is walking along the beach and he sees a man and his son. He's also working on this novel in his mind and he sees something between the man and the son and thinks, ah, good, that can go in here. And then he sees something else, ah, good. You know, so it's sort of... Um, so as an artist, you're always sort of building this thing even when you're not concentrating on it, it's mm. always there in your mind. But I think that concept of the inner life in that first chapter called Fertile Ground, I realised that there were things that, that could be very threatening to the inner life and things that nourish my inner life and my creativity, I suppose. And, and you know, ironically, the things that really n nourish or threaten the inner life are, are things from the outer life and quite physical things like, um, you know, eating properly and exercise and 
um, uh, having some sort of vague sense of order in the house um, mm. and creating boundaries of, of time and space, which are you know, not so practical, but they have very practical, um, you know, um, results when you say to someone, I can't come for lunch because I'm working. Yeah. Um, and that, that can be quite hard to do, to draw those boundaries. But if you don't do it, you will never finish a project, I think. Elizabeth Jolly used to say that she worked best late at night because she couldn't work or think properly um, until everyone in the house was fed and asleep. Mm. And that, that's, a, you know, an incredible constriction to put on your work, but that was how she felt about living in the house. There was nothing to be done about it, really. Yeah, and everyone finds their own way. That's the thing. I mean, I, I couldn't work in a house full of people, but, you know, loads of writers have a house full of children yeah. um, and work, you know... I think there's a fantastic photograph somewhere of Ruth Park at a tiny little table typing with two toddlers sort of crawling around her legs. Um, you know, people have written in all kinds of circumstances, mm. but I don't know that I could do that. No, I don't think I could do it either. Um, moving, moving to a, an idea again that kept, you know, recurring as I was reading through these essays, um, it, it, and it strikes me that this is a good metaphor for them, um, the writer Georgia Blaine, who is a good friend of Charlotte's and who is sadly now no longer with us, um, wrote a novel... Uh, in the middle of which she was diagnosed with an incurable cancer. Um, it's called Between a Wolf and a Dog. And that's a, a you know, it's a translation of a French expression that means really um, dusk, doesn't it? Yes. You know, the sort of twilight where you can see that there's a thing, but you don't know whether it's um, friendly or an yes. enemy. You don't know whether it's dangerous or the opposite. You can't tell whether it's a wolf or a dog. It could be either. Um, and, and, it's, and that's a really... That's a sort of moment of tension that's got to be held in tension, mm. isn't it, to be aware of the phenomenon. And, and what comes up in, in Charlotte's discussion of creativity again and again is the idea that you really need to, do, to be in a state of tension between what seem to be two opposite things. Mm. And between certainties, I think. Um, and it's very uncomfortable to always not know anything. Like, it's really... It's quite exhausting to, to spend two or three or four years working on something, not knowing where it's going, whether it's going to work, what's happening in it, why am I doing this, you know, why, why am I writing about this character and this one? They have nothing to do with each other. But what I have learned is to obey the instinct, hmm. you know, the intuitive mind and the natural way of things, that book from several years ago, sort of taught me how to obey my intuition. And that became, it's really precious to me now that I, I understand when my instinct is telling me something and just just follow it and do what it says. Um, but that, that means that you, you don't know still. Yeah. So it's a kind of, you kind of have to give up rationality for long, long periods of time. And that's a scary thing to do when you're a person who likes to be in control like I do. Yeah. Um, you have to allow yourself to not have control and to also you know like that that chapter on Catholicism is I know why I'm an atheist because of all these very clear you know crimes frankly of the Catholic literally of the Catholic Church and yet there's all this other stuff that I really value from that and 
part of that is kind of my own um, sort of moral compass comes from that. Yeah. Even though the, the moral compass over here is so, you know, off kilter. Um, and I think having the ability to hold two opposing views at once is, I think, I, I don't know, it's, a, it's, it's frankly the mark of being an adult, I think. Yeah. But um, it's, it's extremely important for artists. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, any of you have read an early, an early novella by Helen Garner called Honour. Um, in the very last scene, there's two women, um, mm. one of whom is the ex-partner of the partner of the other one, uh, and they're on a seesaw. Mm. And they're, it's implied that they're exactly the same weight and they're balancing mm. on the seesaw and, they're, and that's it's the final image of the, of the image. book. And I kept thinking of that image, you know, when, when you were talking about needing to hold the tension between this... Yes, and, and it's, a, it's the understanding that the tension will never be resolved. Yes. That's important too, to think you have to... The state between certainties is it's where the artist lives in that place. And you don't want, I don't want to live there because <laughs> it's... I don't like being uncertain all the time, but now I understand that I can't not live there. Yeah. That's where I get my stuff from. You mentioned, you know, sort of the feeling of kind of flying blind when you were writing the natural way of things. And you've said somewhere in these essays, I was often highly anxious that I didn't understand the meaning of what I was doing. Mm. Um, and, and it sounded to me like it was one of those places where you really needed to let the instinctual side take over and just let the rational side have a rest for a while. Absolutely. And just stop asking what it means, you know. Yeah. And I, I sort of channelled um, in that period... The uh, visual artist Louise Bourgeois, I don't know, you will know her works even if you don't know her name, these, these giant, huge, terrifying-looking spiders, you know, outside the Guggenheim, stuff that, like they're the size of a building, or there's all kinds, like very weird, dark stuff that she produced. And she, or she had these huge uh, bronze, very frightening-looking penises that she would sort of... And she was this tiny little... The pictures of her as this tiny little ancient old woman carrying this massive, horrifying-looking bronze penis around. Um, but she had a, a, a bunch of, a, of installations called cells. Um, and they were these sort of metal cages with just strange things inside them, hanging hmm. inside them, things that looked like sort of body parts and other things that looked like um, sort of surgical beds. And they were very menacing, threatening things. And I came across these and I thought, I had this sort of flash of revelation that may or may not be true at all, but my, my feeling was, Louise Bourgeois doesn't sit around going, oh, I wonder what it means, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that, oh, it's not very nice, and oh, what will people think of me? She just goes there and, you know, in my sort of way of thinking, she just hangs a uterus in a cage and just does it. And, um, and that was very inspiring to me to go, so I just sort of... I said to these writing friends at the time, I'm just going to be Louise Bourgeois. I'm just going to hang some uteruses in a cage and stop wondering why am I hanging the uteruses in a cage? What does it mean? What will people think of me for doing this? All that stuff that's so tiring and so boring. Um, and then when I just let all this weird, quite dark stuff come out, it had power. Oh, yeah. And it had power that... I felt like it didn't even come from me. It came from some other place. And all I had to do was put it there. And it was so kind of, you know, I mean, it was hard to do, but it was still, it was like, ah, oh, you know, kind of yielding. To, and this is where this sort of 
interest in the uncanny and the unconscious yeah. comes from for me. It's like you can sort of hand it over to this strange force that is the artistic impulse sometimes, but you have to remind yourself all the time that it's possible to do that. Yeah, and sustaining the handing of it over for a whole book mm. must have, ironically enough, required a great deal of rational thought. Yeah, and then you shape it and, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that... But, but I feel now that leaving enough of that sort of weirdness in without explanation is very powerful. Mm. And I think... I don't know. People responded to that book in a way they'd never responded to mm. any of my other works. And, and I feel it was because of that, this sort of unexplained strangeness that... Mm. Um, or un, I didn't sort of plead for understanding of the strange. It was like, there's the strangeness. You can sort of take it or take leave it. Take it or leave it, yeah. Yep. Just before, we'll, we'll go to questions in a minute, but it's just one more thing I want to ask you about quickly. Um, we haven't talked much about The Weekend. And I'm, um, I, know you, I know you wrote the book under the aegis, so to speak, of the Charles Perkins research facility at the University of Sydney. Charlotte was the first writer in residence at that mm. centre. And it was a kind of project, wasn't it, a a about ageing and the ageing process and how it was and everything. Did the book grow out of that? Or were you already working on the book and you thought, oh, this is a good place to I, I already it? had a, a, a kind of vague idea for the book that I wanted to write about ageing and I wanted to write about friendship. But I hadn't written any of the book. So the Charles Perkins Centre is um, a... a Research a science research centre at the University of Sydney, and it is a place dedicated to creativity, really. And I've never ever felt the creativity respected as I as mm. I did in that place, full of scientists. Um, I've never felt it in an arts organisation. Yeah. Um, in the way that... So my job there was... First of all, it was incredibly well-resourced, which as an artist, you're just like, what? You know, this <laughs> private philanthropist called Judy Harris um, gives $100,000 for a writer to be there for a year to write their book uh, and sort of cross paths with scientists. Yeah. And the whole point of the place is that things happen when you put... And Steve Simpson, who runs it, says, you select for excellence and then you just step, step back. Yeah. And it was so thrilling and exciting because this is a place, as, as he said when I did the interview for this thing... This place is built on risk and it's, it's a kind of nurturer of risk and of connections being made and if they don't work, they fall away and another connection is made. Yeah. It's not you have to prove to us that your, your idea is going to bear fruit before we will give you the funding. Or the, you know, and I think really oh, yeah. any kind of innovation comes out of this, but it's very rare that it's in a huge organisation. Yeah. So it's a very special place. I can remember being on a, a, a panel some years ago about which is kind of a, an ideas panel really about the arts. It was a kind of multi, multi art form um, think tank type arrangement, just a one off. And there was one person there very successful um, in the mu field of music who said, look, we've got to learn to fund for failure. Yeah. And the rest of it just kind of cracked up and rolled our eyes like anyone would ever do that in your dreams. Yeah. And yet you know, it's it's you've got artists have to go away and fail on their own, or, or yeah, they fa they they're unfunded for failure. Yeah, yes. um, but you know, all the kind of amazing tech, cool people have done that. You yeah. know, they've come out of failure and they respect failure yeah. as part of it. Yep. 
That's a great note to take some questions on. Respect failure. <laughs> we have a question, I think, already. Um, Charlotte, you've earned my trust as a reader. I just buy every book I see with your name on it. Thank it's you fantastic. so much. And I think trust is in short supply these days in our political leaders and scientists and in ourselves at times. So I'm just interested if you might be able to talk more about the trust you place in yourself mm. when you're embarking on your work. Oh. Thank you. Um, first of all, thank you for following me as a reader. I don't think you readers know what it means to us to be consistently read over time. One of the things that has made me trust what I'm doing... I remember years ago coming here and saying... And I had... I think the book was Animal People then and I was talking about this sort of stuff and I said, I'm writing a new book and I'm very fearful that the people who love this book will not love my next book. And oh. a fantastic woman in the audience stood up and said, we will come with you. Yeah. And, oh, God. Um, it... So that has given me a huge amount of confidence. But also, you know, I talk a lot in this book about kind of what the natural way of things taught me um, about going into a scary space and being having the guts to go there, basically, and the riches that come to you when you, when you push past certain fears. And um, someone like Grace Tame... Shows all of us, right, how to just... Like, I'm more and more astonished by that woman's power. Mm. And especially that last scene with the bong picture, where it's like, well, this is a moment, you know, are they going to get her this time? And then she just, like, nah. And, you know, turns it around and, and claims it and goes, come at me. You know, it's like, whoa, that's so thrilling to witness when someone is not afraid... I mean, not that I'm trying to equate anything that I'm doing with, with her, what she's doing, but trust. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, it's, it's hard to learn to trust yourself, but I do think trusting your instinct is really undervalued. Um, and, you know, when I worked with the scientists, one thing that I learned really quickly was that artists and scientists are very similar, and they agree with me. You know, that's why they want creative writers in there. And I've made various friends there where there's... I've talked to them about the power of instinct and hunches and dreams and joy, and, and they love talking about that stuff. You know, and I always thought scientists, well, they're just going to go, oh, well, that's not very rational. Lots of their work is driven by, um, you know... Obviously, then they verify all of this stuff in a way that, as an artist, you don't really have to. But, um, yeah, I... I think trusting our instinct... Um, I am rambling now, but um, thank you for your lovely question. Kai, before we go on with questions, I did forget to say, as you can see, if you've got a question, come to the microphone in the middle here, about halfway back, and please don't begin with, this is more of a comment than a question, because nobody ever wants to hear that. Um, if, if you want to have a chat with Charlotte, she'll be signing books at the end anyway. So we have another question, yep. Do you handwrite... Do you write with a computer? And how long has each computer or laptop lasted? <laughs> <laughs> I write with a laptop um, to my detriment, really, because I have shocking RSI and um, I took my little splints off to come here because oh. I was frocking up. Um, but... It, uh, 
I can't. I wish I could handwrite in a way. My writing, my handwriting is terrible, but also I, I can't seem to think now without typing. Like it sort of mm. doesn't doesn't come out of handwriting for me. Uh, uh, laptops. How long do they last? I'm a shocking um, um, early adopter of technology, so I'm always. I think I, mean, I need a new one now. I think this one's a bit too slow, which is <laughs> rubbish. Um, so I don't know. A few years. Um, yeah. Thanks. Do we have any more questions up there? It doesn't. I thought someone was lining up. She wasn't. Oh, oh yep, here we go. I'm curious about uh, the role of studying creative writing um, and what is the role... And clearly you've done a lot of study. And how does that influence your writing? And does it, in fact, influence your writing now? It's a good question. It's very, very vexed, um, academia and creative writing and creativity in general, I think. I happen to find extremely good supervisors who were willing to let me do my thing, basically, in the postgraduate stuff. I think I did creative writing in, in undergraduate degrees with, with excellent teachers, and all that was really was teaching you to practice. It was just practising writing and reading, um, which is the most important thing. But I think in the postgraduate world, uh, universities don't trust artists either. Um, it's, most of creative writing degrees come out of the English department, and this is possibly going to offend some people, but um, English, English lit academia is concerned with the end result of creativity. It's not concerned with the process of creativity, and I think a lot of... Um, in my personal experience, anyway, a lot of um, English lit academics don't... They don't want to involve themselves with the process of creative writing. So my PhD was, it, was um, using cognitive psychology, not anything to do with literary theory or anything to do with English literature school, and my brilliant, brilliant supervisor was from the music school, and oh, she excellent. got it. She was like, I know exactly what you're doing. And, I'm, and she was, her name is Dorothea Fabian from the University of New South Wales. Uh, she's wonderful. And, and I had another supervisor, Anne Brewster, for, for my creative component. But um, I, it's kind of vexed. I think creative, and I, I know a lot of teachers of creative writing who are really ground down by the university system that treats them like garbage, to be quite frank. Um, they bring in a lot of students, so they're needed, yeah. but they're not respected. And I, what I would really love is for universities to start actually respecting that creative arts staff know what they're doing and listen to them. <laughs> Thanks for that. Do we have any more questions? Yep. Hi, Charlotte. Can you talk a bit more about the value of decluttering? Because I'm in that process and, and what that means for you. <laughs> oh, decluttering. <laughs> well, um, I'm not sure I'm any expert, but I do love chucking stuff out. My husband and I are quite... He's, he's actually much tidier than I am, but I love getting rid of stuff. And he is more... Well, he's, he's better at saying we don't need a new thing. But I'm very bad at saying let's get a new thing. Um, <laughs> but I do like... I like 
space and order. I mean, as I say, I'm actually a very messy person, but I really admire people who are not messy yeah. because, and I like, and I sort of do eventually clean up my act, my surroundings, because it creates space in my mind and order. Not actually not order, but it creates space, and you know, it, sort of mentally, the clutter for me that is most dangerous is um, too much time online, too much, especially in social media, but also just you know, doom scrolling, too much time um, going from one horrifying news story to another to another. That is just utterly depleting to any sense of creativity because I refer to a study in here talking about um, the most creative mood state and this fantastic meta-analysis of 25 years of creativity research that looked at the most, you know, all these all this research into mood and creativity found that Basically, in, in short, uh, fear and anxiety is the least creative state there possibly is. Yeah. And that sort of agitation. And so that's what being online a lot creates in me. And so the kind of major mental clutter comes from, from too much time online and also too much social stimulation. I love being sociable, but it's, if I do too much, it sort of just depletes. Just one more, I think, if you're very quick. Just a quick one. Do you think there is a book in your idea of how COVID should have been handled? <laughs> uh, look, there's probably an encyclopedia, but not for me to write. Um, I just wish. I just wish that our political class—I'm not going to say leaders because I don't think there are any—would. Um, just open their minds to other ways of doing things. It's just so depressing, the kind of constant reiterating... You know, I don't know if anyone saw um, Saul Griffith yesterday, most inspiring, amazing man. He said, you know, we're very good at snatching uh, defeat from the jaws of victory in this country. And um, I think we are. But with creative people like him, if we can go, right, we li- want to listen to you. I want to listen to you and trust you. You know, it's the trust in that creativity that I think is really missing. Mm-hmm. Another blather, sorry. Um, I, um, we probably do have to wrap up, but I, can I just say before we do, um, thank you to everybody here who's wearing a mask. I know we don't have to, and it, it's really great that people are prepared to take their own responsibility and make their own free choices about looking after themselves and each yes, other. And that means you can be here, and so can Charlotte. So please thank Charlotte with me very much for this great session. Thank you, session. Karen, once again. Such a great talk. Thank you. Thank you.